This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to the College Football Fix Podcast. Dan Walken here from USA Today Sports with Paul Meyerberg. Man, this has turned into a busy, newsy week in the college football world. It's actually a little bit crazy right now. Hard to figure out where to start, but let's go to LSU, Paul. Ed Orgeron is out as the LSU coach. We saw this coming. This is not a surprise. We know why he got fired, the direction it was going. This seemed like an inevitable conclusion. A little bit funny, strange that basically they've made this agreement that he's out after the season, but he's going to finish out coaching this team and they just came off a win over florida so ed orgeron's getting his money he is not going to be the coach there next year they're going to have this search who knows where it's going to end up but just put into perspective the idea that this guy was on top of the world the last time we were together really at a national championship game without masks and vaccines and all this stuff January of 2020 in New Orleans, and now he's out of a job. It's just a crazy timeline. Yeah, Dan, in the before times, Ed Orgeron was the king of the world in college football. Uh, since then, a lot has changed. Um, a lot has changed. It's been 21 months. But look, like, if he had won enough games, he'd still be coached. But we can't talk about Ed Orgeron's tenure without talking about all the mistakes off the field and all the issues off the field. And I think that contributes to it. Truth be told, uh, I'm not sure why he's still the coach today. Uh, I don't like, has he, has he garnered that much goodwill? Um, is it just because of 2019, a magical year, you get the chance to play out the string? Um, doesn't seem to be that kind of thing. It's not like he's been there for 25 years. He's not Frank Beamer, final year at Virginia Tech. Hey, coach out the year, then we're going to, you know, go in a different direction. So I don't, I don't know what that is all about. All I know is that Ed Orgeron being on top of the world is very much a nostalgic um, how the world used to be thing. Because I remember when he used to be that way. Just like I remember going outside and intermingling with people. (laughs) Well, it was amazing to me how fast after this decision came out that you saw the sort of deep dive pieces coming from people closely connected to LSU Uh, Brody Miller wrote one at The Athletic. Ross Dellinger wrote one from Sports Illustrated. Ross used to cover LSU as a beat writer. Very connected there. Like Those stories were queued up and ready to go and spilling all the tea (laughs) about the stuff that was going on behind the scenes at LSU. And look, it's a complicated story, and it's, it's one that's a little bit difficult to talk about because it is so interconnected with stuff that was going on with Orgeron personally. And whether it's fair or not, a lot of people sort of pinpoint the beginning of the downfall to six weeks after they win the national championship. Ed Orgeron's on top of the world. He's about to get this insane new contract. He's at the peak of popularity, the peak of power, and he files for divorce from his wife of 23 years. And the narrative that was created and – You had heard some of this behind the scenes. There was a picture last year that came out that was kind of viral on social media with him in bed with a woman. And, you know, you didn't see that. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a picture that came out and, you know, he's 
got that Kojo smile and you know, he's in, he's in bed with a woman, with a blonde woman and whatever, right? Like he's a single guy, he's divorced, free to live his life, whatever. But it sort of created this narrative that after he wins the national championship, Coach O is not laser focused on keeping up with Alabama. He's spending a whole lot of time, you know, chasing women, um, whatever, that goes along with that. There were stories anonymously sourced that came out about bringing some of these women around practice and even their kids and uh, about him approaching a woman at a gas station. And that's the craziest one to me, not just that the woman was highly connected and with an influential husband in the LSU board. Like that's a different story. He tried to pick a woman up at a gas station. Um, What are you doing? Does that work? Because he got to be the first, I don't know about the first, but I mean, that's, that is a bold move. Woman's pumping gas and you're going to go over and try to pick that woman up. Um, that means you're feeling it. That means your mojo is working. Um, if you try to do that. Yeah. And look, I think the one thing that I take away from, from the Orgeron stuff besides the, the stuff about, you know, chasing women is that, that largely people don't change. Right. And there was this whole narrative about Orgeron because of how spectacularly he flamed out at Ole Miss, that he had like become a new person suddenly at LSU and that that's why they won the national championship in 2019. And I'm sorry, but that's just not the way it works. Right. Um, they won the national championship in 2019 because Dave Aranda was sort of the calming influence behind the scenes because Joe Burrow like got better historically it quicker than maybe any quarterback ever in college football. It happened because he brought this guy, Joe Brady, that nobody knew, like nobody in college football had heard of Joe Brady when he was with the new Orleans saints. He was an assistant to the assistant in the new Orleans saints. Mm-hmm. LSU hires him. I mean, again, all these things just happen, but Orgeron is still the guy who meddled too much in what his assistants were doing in areas where he didn't have expertise. He was still the guy with the hair trigger temper who would fly off the handle and frankly got worse in stressful situations. Like all these things were still true about coach O, right? All these things still happened. And so once 2019 went goodbye and the people involved in that incredible success moved on, Orgeron was left with, a program that he kind of had to rebuild still the same sort of flaws that suddenly got magnified when the people he brought in to replace weren't as good as the people that left. And that's why we are where we are today. And I'm sorry, like I know he's got a national championship, but it's the same now as it was to me back when he was hired. Like, I don't think he's a good head coach. Yeah. I just remember when he did get hired, the feeling of, it seems strange to say, because they did have a historic year, but the feeling of relief almost in the SEC among coaches, certainly among assistant coaches at other programs, about the idea that, okay, so it's Ed Orgeron at LSU. It's not XYZ. It's not a different guy who might build a dynasty. And Orgeron made him look stupid because we can never take that 2019 season away from him no matter what, whoever we credit. That's on his resume. It's a historic year. But, yeah, I think LSU is a place that, uh, as we've seen from some coaches at some periods in the past, can be built to last. And I don't know if Ed Orgeron ever had a program built to last. Um, 
it was a meteor of a program, you know, for one year streaked across the sky and that's it. So, um, look, his reputation is better today than I was after Ole Miss as a football coach. I just don't know um, what the next step is for him. I don't think he's ever going to get an opportunity like this again. But, uh, you know, his tenure will be defined eventually and ultimately by the inability to capitalize on great success. So what now? What does LSU do? Who are they going to go after? We know that Scott Woodward, who is the athletic director at LSU, had previously been at Washington and Texas A&M, his M.O. was going after the big name, the splashy hire, the person with the track record. He got Chris Peterson to leave Boise. No one had been able to do that. He threw the huge bag of money at Jimbo Fisher, got him to come from, from Tallahassee, threw big money at Buzz Williams from uh, Virginia Tech, who had been one of the most successful basketball coaches in college of the last decade. He got at LSU women's basketball, Kim Mulkey, three-time national champion. Like, this is what he does. So, you know, now you're seeing talk that he's going to go after, you know, make Dabo say no, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like whatever it takes, you know. So what do you think? I still think it's going to end up with a guy like Mel Tucker. We've been talking about him for weeks um, as this, you know, plan 1A, when eventually someone like Jimbo says no. Um there are only so many coaches, Look, they can ask everyone in the country, but only so many guys are actually going to say yes. I mean, I don't think that was going to say yes to LSU. I mean, that's crazy to me um, that he'd leave Clemson, even as Clemson's kind of taking a step back this year. That's crazy. Um, you're not getting Nick Saban. Um, I don't think you're getting Jimbo Fisher. So then you start thinking about the second options. I think Mel Tucker is just a great fit and a great option. So I'm still sticking with that. If I had to bet on one guy getting the job, I would say him. But um, if you're asking who other than Tucker, who other than those big three, I really don't know. I really don't. Because I don't think James Franklin is going to LSU over staying at Penn State or going to USC. I don't necessarily know if that's the case. What about Lane? We spoke about Lane last week as an option based off his ability to coordinate an offense, to recruit, to build an identity, and build some some pizzazz. I love it. I just don't know if LSU loves the idea <laughs> I don't know if LSU can do that. Also, Scott Woodward, is that is that big enough? Probably. It probably is big enough for him. Lane's a big, big, big name. Um, but it, it would be a hard sell. Lane's a big name in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, too. Uh, yeah. These days. Boy. He's got the golf ball to prove it. Yeah, that was fun. I, well, no, it was not fun. I just thought the moment of him having the golf ball and then showing it again as he was walking off the field, you know that's going in a, in a glass case somewhere in his office for the rest of his life, that, that – uh, yellow practice range golf ball. I caught him on the right elbow. All right. What's your theory on the bottle of mustard? And obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you know what happened Saturday night in Knoxville, the Tennessee fans disgracefully throwing all the trash on the field, stopping the game for 20 minutes at the end against Ole Miss when frankly, Tennessee still had a chance to win, which was crazy. Um, the bottle of mustard on the field. What, what do you make of that? Who, who brings their own mustard? I don't, I yeah. don't, there's, there's some thought out there that there was not mustard in that mustard bottle. I've been thinking about this for days. Let me tell you, that's not a flask because you don't build a flask out of a French's mustard bottle and then just throw it away. Like that's not something you, that, that's a process. That's a process. You're either, you're washing that by hand and then dishwashing that five, six, seven times. So your, 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 uh, you know, bee feeders doesn't taste like mustard or you're like carving out like some sort of, 
ballast buoyancy thing, like a submarine on the inside where there's an inner layer inside your French's mustard for your, for your alcohol to go. I don't think it's a flask. All right. But that only leaves as their other option, but someone's bringing their own mustard into a football game. And let me tell you why that's stupid and crazy. Number one, uh, Mustard is an all-you-can-eat buffet style at any sporting event, right? There's no cap on the amount of mustard you can get. You can go to a Knicks game, pay $17.50 for a hot dog, and put $26 worth of mustard on that dog. No one's going to come over and say, no more mustard, sir. You've had enough. There's no cap on it, right? Um, so that's an issue. And the other issue is you're already getting yellow mustard. Yellow mustard is the is the fallback mustard option at sporting events, certainly in the SEC. That's yellow mustard country. You're not getting Golden's grain mustard. You're definitely not getting Dijon, right? So if you're going to bring a different mustard into the game, it's going to be a brown mustard. So I'm still perplexed and at sea about this. I cannot tell you what that is about. The only option is the simplest one. Someone likes mustard so much that they don't even want to get out of their seat to get it. They want to have it on ready at all times. But then, Dan how they get into the stadium. What if somebody only will eat French's mustard on their hot dog? They will not take Heinz. They will not take, you know, whatever generic brand that the Tennessee people bought at Costco. Like what, what if you only will accept French's? That's a weird OCD thing that I don't want to criticize. If that's part of your just mental makeup that you need to have French's just like someone needs to run the faucet three times when they wash their hands. That's fine. And that's on you. Again, Dan, how do you get it in? Okay. How do you get it in? There's this thing. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called your Bronx wallet um, in prison. Your Bronx wallet is how you would smuggle things in to your friends, you know, things that are against the rules. We can all imagine what your Bronx wallet really is. I don't think you're bringing your mustard bottle in your Bronx wallet. I don't know how you're getting in it. Are you, are you cutting out a hole inside of your shirt that is shaped like a French, French's mustard bottle and then putting it against your breast? I really don't know any ideas how you get a mustard bottle in because you can't bring those into stadiums. Yeah. I, I would just say that sec fans are very well practiced at smuggling contraband into stadiums and they have their ways, you know, or yeah. maybe, or maybe security is just so overwhelmed and busy. They're not really digging in the bottom of somebody's purse. You know, that's it. That's the only thing I can think. Okay. Of. I mean, I would like to see more of that. I'd like to see more French's mustard. I like to, if I hope for the rest of the season, um, that Tennessee fans, as they pan, do that ESPN sky cam, spider cam pan over that everyone just holds up their condiments, like a bottle of sriracha, some ketchup, relish, uh, what, what, sambal. What kind, of, what kind of mustard do you use typically? I use a, like a Golden's. Like, I don't want the grain stuff. I just want a little bit of a darker mustard. I think the French's is, is like cloying. It, like, it's a, it ruins its overwhelming taste. So... I'm a big mustard guy. I've probably got about eight different kinds of mustard in, in my fridge. People don't know this about me, mm -hmm. but I've probably got eight different kinds of mustard in my fridge. And what is your go-to? Well, it just depends on what I'm eating, you know, on a, what are you putting on a hot dog? Well, I don't really eat hot dogs uh, per se, but on a hot dog, I, I would go with yellow mustard. I would go with regular yellow mustard, Turkey sandwich on, Tur on Turkey sandwich. Whole wheat. Probably going with a really grainy mustard or mm -hmm. or the kosher deli mustard. I don't know if you've had that. Is that like a is that a is that like a, that's a brown mustard, right? Or that's not a Dijon mustard. That's it's not a D, it's not a Dijon. It's sort of halfway between a brown mustard and a yellow. Okay. See, that's the sweet spot to me. 
That's a okay. sweet spot. All right. Uh, moving on from our uh, condiment talk, the other side of that LSU game Saturday was was Florida. And Florida unexpectedly, to me anyway, loses that game. LSU had been playing really poorly, had a bunch of guys out with injury. That should have been a win for Florida. It wasn't. And now all of a sudden, Dan Mullen is just getting peppered with criticism, with questions, with angst over what's going on there. Anthony Richardson, their very promising quarterback, kind of put out a a quote. And I, he probably didn't intend it to come off this way, but it was sort of really noncommittal about his future at Florida. He sort of doubled back and said, oh, I'm a Gator, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you know, Dan Mullen's a guy who, to me, his first few years there, I wouldn't say he wildly exceeded expectations, but he sort of met expectations. Well, this year now they've got three losses. They lose to Kentucky. They lost to Alabama. They lose to LSU. This is not going to be a great Florida year by any measure. He seems to be irrationally wedded to Emory Jones starting at quarterback. It's just getting weird down there. Like, I don't really know what to make of it. He's not on the hot seat. Like, they're not going to fire him. But if things keep going this direction, he could be on the hot seat next year. This isn't the first time he's had an issue at quarterback. And you remember Felipe Franks was this dude until there was no other option than Cal Trask to go over and then let the world on fire. So I don't know what's going on with terms of not seeing, like, I hate to say not seeing what we're seeing. He sees a lot more than we do, but it seems so obvious from our perspective and from the perspective of the fan base that the best quarterback on the roster is Richardson. So I think Trask was the best quarterback on the roster, and you begin to wonder what the story is with Emory Jones and why it is that he keeps trotting him out there. Um, I don't even think, I think Mullen exceeded expectations to a degree. And I think Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri said something really telling the other day after they lost to Texas A&M. He goes, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, maybe we did too much too fast and we set up this idea that we're already there. Um, and now they're three and four. They might top out at six and six and maybe the fan base is getting a little restless. You know, I, I think Mullen set up very high expectations at Florida that he's not beating this year. I, I, I just don't know if I want to give him the same pass you give drink with because the expectations should be there for Florida. You should be not losing four. You shouldn't be sitting at four and three before Halloween. But I do think that we thought they'd be a lot better based off the idea that they were building towards this. And I don't really know if that was fair in hindsight in the preseason. Yeah, but, but this isn't Missouri. This is Florida. Like, Florida should be sort of a plug-and-play type of program. And the biggest issue to me with the Mullen regime at, at Florida is you go year by year in the recruiting rankings and the just level of talent they're bringing in, they should be right there neck and neck with Georgia. And they're not. Georgia's just blowing them away. And Georgia, you know, right now, I don't want to say probably going to win the national championship, but they're they're definitely the favorite. Florida's just not keeping pace. I know Florida won the game last year, won the East, put a scare in Alabama. But when you zoom out, I think there's a pretty big gap between Georgia and Florida. And I don't think that that's something that will be acceptable to the Florida people for very long. No, there's an obvious gap. I just don't know what, what is the missing piece. Like you said, the talent is there. Um, 
he's getting good quarterback play or he's gotten good quarterback play. It's not a difference of, oh, they've got JT Daniels and we've got a bunch of scrubs, especially last year. So I don't really know what's missing other than talent retention, talent development. Well, probably some you know? depth, and too. Like, yeah, I'm, for sure. But Kirby Smart's had six or seven years to build this depth, and Mullen's got two full recruiting cycles, one a pandemic year. I'm not making excuses for him, certainly. I'm just trying to identify why it is that Georgia seems so far ahead at this point, and we kind of know why, but when, when and where will Florida make up that ground? I mean, will they beat them odd years? Like last year, probably. I mean, I think Mullins is still a really good football coach, but yeah, like like you said, the gap is so profound and so obvious that like it would take Georgia falling back for Florida to meet him. You know, I don't I don't know how long it would take for that kind of gap to be closed. Could take another two or three years. Yeah, and and look, if you're Florida, trust me, I'm not advocating to sit here start firing Dan Mullen um, because you know how easily this can go wrong just on the evidence that the previous coach was Jim McElwain and the, and the one before that was Will Muschamp. Right. Like, just like uh, after Spurrier, you had Rob Zip. Yeah, um, you can, you can hire bad coaches at Florida. And by the way, the search that landed them, Dan Mullen, like the other two guys they were really looking at were Chip Kelly and Scott Frost. Yeah. Right? Tell me about it. Right. So you dodged a bullet. Um, and you still got Dan Mullen. Here's the thing, like Dan Mullen, if he gets fired, like he's going to have another power five job in a, in a very short amount of time. I, I just, he's, a, he's a good football yeah. coach. Everybody knows that. Um, and things could have been a whole lot worse. Um, like Scott Frost, I don't think he's beaten a team with a winning record yet. So can you imagine at Florida if that shit, excuse me, if that stuff had, had befallen the Gators be a lot worse. So Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. I was just going to say really fast, like to me, it's not that, complicated how this could go maybe at the end of this year early next year Anthony Richardson gets the job full-time he's you know even better than he is now and he's sort of this Cam Newton like like figure I'm not saying he's as good as Cam Newton but like the attributes are there you know what he needs he needs to play yeah my suggestion would be to play him because if you think that he's got the potential to be a an all-conference, all-SEC, dual-threat monster like he looks like he could be, then he needs to play. He needs to play. All right, let's get to Nick Rolovich, the Washington State coach who was fired on Monday when he was not granted a religious exemption to the vaccine mandate that the state of Washington had implemented for all public employees this had been an ongoing issue for months and months and months. We all first learned of it really when Rolovich did not go to Pac-12 media days in person because he was the only Pac-12 coach who was unvaccinated. Ever since then, it's sort of been this, this sort of dance with him where he would get asked about, is he going to take the vaccine? Why not? What are his views? And he basically never offered anything about what he actually thought other than I'm going to comply with the mandate. You know, he sort of would say that. Um, And, of course, that was actually not – that was technically true, but not true in spirit because he – what he planned to do was apply for this exemption. He did not get it. And it was a blind process. Like, I don't think they were picking on him. I don't think they were singling him out. This was – this religious exemption thing through the the state was, you know, there were no names attached. He didn't get it. 
and therefore he was deemed unable to fulfill the duties of his job. He was fired along with four assistant coaches. This is, regardless of how you feel about vaccine mandates or the COVID-19 vaccine or whatever, this is a terrible deal for Washington State, for the, for the kids on that team, for the assistant coaches who came with Rolovich to, to work there, who uprooted their lives, who moved from Hawaii, who you know brought their kids. And we know that stuff is part of the business. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. You lose, you don't perform, you get fired, you got to move on. Assistant coaches are well-versed in this. But what you don't expect, what you don't want is to have it all blow up because you know some numbskull won't get a vaccine that 180 million other Americans have have gotten. Again, I find this to be so sad, um, truly sad, and uh, not to mention it's probably the most interesting story in terms of coaching that we've ever come across. To me personally, I think it's fascinating, more fascinating than a guy like Kiffin who does a one and done at Tennessee. I find this just to be unbelievably fascinating. Um, you wrote the other day that essentially he's a numbskull. And I think a lot of people agree with you. And I think you're a numbskull if you believe that there's something wrong with the vaccine or worse yet, you think COVID's a hoax or that the vaccine, you're getting a microchip. You're a numbskull if you think that. Truth is, we don't know what Rolovich thinks. It would be great if we did. I think he had countless opportunities to do that. I think he did, he did himself a disservice by not. I think everyone agrees on that. If he had stepped forward and, and just articulated where he's coming from and what he's about, at the very least, he might not have kept his job, probably would not have, but at least we'd have some sort of understanding. Um, a lot of people lost their jobs, like you said, because of this. People on the periphery, we're talking support staffers, video people, uh, assistant coaches, GAs. Their careers are, are put on pause or completely stymied at this point by Nick Rolovich, and that's disappointing. I just, Dan, I, I want to I kind of think about a, a nuanced perspective on this, personally. Um, there's an amount of sacrifice that he didn't show, right? The sacrifice that he didn't show by getting the vaccine. By not doing that, um, he costs a lot of people their livelihoods and their careers. And you can't overlook that. Um, I just don't, I want us to respect, like uh, not from a, like an admiration perspective, but just in terms of an understanding perspective, I wish that we could have a, an opportunity to respect his decision in terms of the sacrifices that he inflicted on himself. $3 million a year, the end of a career. I want to understand. I, I, I really want to understand what drove the choice. What drove him to make that decision for millions of dollars and a career? What was it? What, what was he thinking? What was behind it? Because I, I just, that's a level of sacrifice that I just can't understand. How many times have we joked around with other people? Oh, I do this or this or this for a million dollars. You know, yeah, I'd eat that. I, I drink that sewer money you know, water for a million bucks as a joke. Ha ha ha. Three million dollars to be a football coach to get a shot. I, 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 I that's a, a sacrifice that I don't understand. I don't understand it from his personal perspective. I just don't I don't get it. It's unbelievably fascinating. Yeah. And the team had actually started to play fairly well. They had won three in a row. You know, they had a chance to even maybe potentially win the Pac-12 North, they were probably going to end up going to a bowl game. Like Things were starting to improve on, on the field. Um, now, who knows like how this is going to go. We'll, we'll see. They play BYU this week. But, you know, the thing with, with this decision is, you know, not just the giving up of the, of the contract, but 
he's he's probably never going to be a head coach at the division one level again. Like it's not just this job because you know he sort of now painted himself as as an unreliable employee, you know, as somebody who can't really be counted on. And so I don't think that athletic directors are going to be in a hurry to to hire a guy like that, uh, regardless of of you know how good a job he did at Hawaii or what might have happened to Washington State, you know, whatever. Like I just don't think that that he's going to be thought of in the same way again. And and his lawyer uh, put out a statement on on Wednesday morning, and they're making threats and they're going to do legal action. I don't really want to get into that particularly. We'll see, but. It's just baffling to me on every level. Um, I understand there are people ha- who have reasons why they don't want the vaccine. I'm not going to say anything about that, like whatever. But he very specifically applied for a religious exemption, right? So if that's genuine and it seems to be that's his argument, like what are like what religious beliefs does he have that would preclude him as a Catholic, he's, he's Catholic from, from taking the vaccine. I don't know. So, you know, is it really religious? Is it political? Is it paranoia? Um, you know, has he taken other vaccines? Like who knows what's going on with this guy, but it's, it's really left the Washington state program in a lurch. I could sense real anger on the part of Pat Chun, the athletic director, the president Kirk Schultz, when they had their press conference, uh, on Monday night, and it just sucks for everybody involved. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. I, I like I use the word respect. We don't have to respect this decision because, like you said, it doesn't just leave 110 kids in a lurch; it leaves an entire program uh, in disarray for not getting a shot, whatever your reason is, you know. But I really want to understand, Dan. I really want to understand. We're never going to understand unless we get to some sort of. Uh, you know, discovery portion of this, whatever proceeding occurs based off Rolovich's lawyer's letter this morning. But I really want to understand. I really want to get it. You're willing to throw away everything. Nick Rolovich, like you threw away everything. Why? Explain. You're allowed to explain. Like you had opportunities to explain. He threw it all away. And like you said, a promising career. This was a dude who's going to coach in the Pac-12 for a long time. People liked him. You know what I mean? People liked him. Like players like playing for him outside of the one kid from last year. Before all this started, he was kind of the quirky, like totally. He he was like the the Mike Leach without the without the baggage. That was the funny part. He was Mike Leach, but more more dependable, more reliable. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Oops. Uh, On the topic of coaches uh, suing schools and sending threatening letters. Jeremy Pruitt, the former Tennessee coach, uh, dropped a bomb on on Tennessee. He he got fired last year. Tennessee basically didn't want to pay him and decided to pin a bunch of NCAA allegations on him. Uh, his lawyer uh, his is firing back at uh, Tennessee. They have not filed a lawsuit yet, but it's a it's a potential lawsuit at this point. And it sounds like he is ready to drop some dimes on. Yeah. Uh, Philip Fulmer on on Willie Martinez on some some former assistants. He even tried to drag Rick Barnes into this, uh, the basketball coach. This is um, th- this is a uh, an ongoing situation to monitor here. Yeah, he went uh, 
hey, nice athletic department. Uh, be ashamed if something happened to it. Basically did that line. Also, um, he was said something along the lines of like, I'm not bluffing. Typically, <laughs> you're bluffing. <laughs> you're saying, I really mean it this time. That's like what you say to a four-year-old. Like, if you don't eat your broccoli, like, I'm, I'm really going to do something. What are you going to do? Um, this seems to me, Dan, we've been down this road before with countless football coaches. Just pay the man a couple bucks. And let's yeah. pretend this never happened. And that's a racist from our internet, from the internet. Let's give him like, what does he want? A couple million? Well, no, start- I mean, I think he probably wants his entire contract. Oh, but whatever he's reasonable. Owed. Let's be reasonable. Let's say he wants, I don't know how much he has left. We need to get Steve Berkowitz on the phone ASAP. I don't know how much he had left when he, when he walked away. We can be sure we can find that out. I would offer him 60 cents on the dollar right now. And under the condition of never, ever email me again. Don't ever show your face around here again. Um, you're a dollar store, Nick Saban. Don't ever show up in Knoxville. Go work somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Far, far be it for me to say, you know, nice things about or defend Jeremy Pruitt, who was a terrible, terrible football coach, and like not that nice of a person, particularly. Um, however, regardless of whatever NCAA violations were were there or happened, that he did or didn't know about or were involved in they fired him because he sucked and when you get fired because you suck to me that is the school's responsibility to pay instead of trying to gin up a case to get out of this this buyout which is clearly at least to me what tennessee's done here um but there's potentially some interesting things that, that would come out of this lawsuit if it happened um so Go ahead, Jeremy. File that baby. Let us yeah. let us let us read it. Let's get into some discovery. Let's get into some clicks. Let's get some page views, Jeremy. Send it along. D Woken at USA Today.com. Is that, that is my that Oops. Hey, it's easily discovered. It's right? I, it's in it's in my Twitter bio. So right. uh, um, not, not a problem. Send it along. Yeah, I'd be fascinated in in hearing about the inner workings of an SEC athletic department. Uh, by the way. Brett Bielema, I want to talk about just really quickly. Um, I got some blowback on Twitter for ripping Bielema yesterday. Bielema basically went up in front of the media at Illinois and kind of trashed the current players at Illinois. And the comment to me that really got me was he, he was talking about his offensive line and he said, there's not a player in the two deep that they recruited here the past three years who is doing much for us from a competitive standpoint. Brutal. That's a, to me, like, look, everyone understands why Brett Bielema is the coach of Illinois because the players that Lovey Smith recruited weren't good enough. We all get that. Like, it sort of goes without saying. But the one thing you typically see in these situations from coaches at this point in, in their tenure is at least some appreciation and acknowledgement that the guys who are there, even if they shouldn't be there, even if they're not big 10 players are, you know, they're, they're doing their best. They're trying, right. They're, they're, they're helping, you know, sort of transition into the next phase of the program, whatever it's going to be. I didn't get any of that from the Bielema comments, like zero appreciation for, for those guys who didn't ask for Brett Bielema to be their coach. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, man. Like, it just bothered me. And I, I, I know Brett Bielema's got a nice 
you know, track record at Wisconsin. Uh, he he's he's got a, a certain style as a coach. I, I appreciate sometimes how forthright and honest he is, but I don't like it when kids get ripped like that. I really don't. Yeah, it's out of line, and I I don't know how he goes into locker room yesterday or today and has a conversation with them. It was way out of line, I thought, and unnecessary, just unnecessary. Um, I don't think he should be talking to anyone about effort. I just don't. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I just don't. I mean, no offense. I just don't. Yeah. When he was at Arkansas, he was falling asleep in meetings. I mean, I just don't. I just don't think he should be having that conversation with anybody. Certainly, he shouldn't be pointing the finger when they're two and five. They weren't two and five last year, were they? Weren't they in a bowl game last full season under Lovey? I don't think he inherited this dumpster fire that people make it out to be. You know, so they're certainly not a good football team. They're not, you know, a seven-win team. But it's just an unnecessary slam of players who are doing their best um, and like you said, the basic point, the most important point of what you said is those guys, uh, it, the Brett Bielema hire was not put to a, a locker room vote. You know, they inherited him, not so much vice versa. So and they've got to play for him. You're a senior on the team now, offensive guard. You've got to spend the next two months with this guy who basically calls you, uh, you know, hot garbage. That, that, that's not right. Let's hit the AAC expansion really quickly. It's been reported uh, multiple places that uh, the AAC is set to add six teams. Um, The AAC tried to do this Western gambit and get schools from the Mountain West. That did not work. So what they're doing instead is they're raiding Conference USA, going to bring on UAB, Charlotte, Florida Atlantic, Rice, North Texas, and UTSA. I think if you are sort of one of the remaining AAC schools, the original AAC schools, if you're a Memphis, if you're, um, you know, uh, uh, a Tulane, if you're a whatever, this is probably a bit disappointing, you know, because you're yeah, not basically. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, based on what you knew was available, is it really disappointing? I think well, it's okay, you know. Here's, here's the thing, though, is like those schools went to the – American, they were in Conference USA previously. You know, the, the Memphises, the SMUs, the Tulane's. They felt like they were sort of, by forming the American, they were sort of getting out of, of that level, right? And that they were leaving those schools behind. And now they've sort of got to accept that they're kind of back in a similar version of the Conference USA they used to be in. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You know, so I think that's, that's why there's disappointment. But, you know, I guess like from a, what's available, it sort of makes sense. And the AAC is probably taking 14 because they're a little worried that the next round of Big 12 expansion, you know, they could lose a Memphis, they could lose a South Florida. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that uh, the, the four is into Texas are strong. Um, Rice is what it is, but it's it's a reputational school. I think that's a nice addition, if not from an athletic perspective, but just from a perception perspective, if that makes sense. Uh, North Texas is in a boom town. Um, Dallas is creeping up. Um, and Denton is becoming a major destination. Um, and obviously, UTSA, I went there seven years ago or whatever and, and saw their program as it was getting built. That's in a goldmine location. I mean, in San Antonio, that's like the biggest untapped uh, for college sports market in the country. Yeah, so they're, they're the I, one that they're the one that they could maybe be the next UCF if they if they invested in it the right way and if they got mm-hmm. it rolling. They the got right a way. huge, huge alumni base for a younger school. They have a huge enrollment. Um, so yeah, I think UTSA is a really nice addition and look like UAB is fine. I mean, and Charlotte's in a, in a major American city. I think they're like, you, you can sell yourself on it, but yeah, you're right. I mean, 
there's a reason they wanted to get, uh, you know, the cream of the crop in the Mountain West first. It wasn't like that was their fallback. This was their fallback. So you got to take that into account. Yeah, UAB, UAB belongs in there anyway. UAB should have been there. You know, if UAB had not been a tire fire in football at the time the AAC was formed, if, mm-hmm. if the current UAB program had been in place then, they would have been in over, you know, over in East Carolina or somebody like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it is what it is. Yeah, so they're at 14. If they settle up at 12, you know, it's not going to be the power six. But, uh, you know, that's fine. What can you do? And now, now we'll have to see sort of what Conference USA does. The problem with Conference USA is that the Sun Belt teams actually make more money than them, so they're not going to be able to really lure people from the Sun Belt. Um, so I don't know what they do. You know, Liberty's out there, UMass is out there. James Madison. James Madison might be interested in moving up to FBS. Like it, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. We'll, we'll we'll see what happens. But the wheels of conference realignment keep turning. All right, let's get to the games this week. Um, the bad news is it's, it's once again a pretty weak slate of games. In fact, it's probably even weaker than, than last week, which, which turned out to be quite entertaining, to, to be honest with you. Um, I, I just don't know where you turn this week because you've got a lot of matchups that are sort of lopsided on paper. You know, you've got an undefeated Oklahoma State team going to Iowa State and is actually a seven-point underdog. Uh, Vegas thinks that this will be the end of of the the road for for Oklahoma State, which is not like the most visually impressive team, but but keeps winning. Yeah, I'm picking Iowa State in this game as well. I think Iowa State is is still a top twenty five team. I think they're playing a lot better. Brock Purdy has been improved, so I think they end the Oklahoma State run and kind of play their way back into a Big Twelve championship, which kind of seems ridiculous considering they were two and two. But I think Iowa State's got a real shot at, at going seven and two in the Big Twelve and, and getting back there. Overall, Dan, you're right. I mean, no games between ranked teams in our poll, I think. That hardly ever happens. Yeah, really, really rare. I do think that there are like five or six games that are interesting. You mentioned one in the Big 12. Um, I think LSU Ole Miss is interesting. Like there's some interest there. I mean, if only because of the subplot of Orgeron. But if Matt Corral doesn't play, then that game's no longer, I think, must-see TV. San Diego State at Air Force in the Mountain West. Yeah, uh, Oregon and UCLA in the Pac-12. Then we have Clemson at Pitt um, uh, in the ACC, which is a game with a lot of intrigue. But uh, hey, and also Tennessee at Alabama. I don't know if we want to say that Tennessee is going to strike fear into Alabama, but at the very least, Tennessee is fun to watch. We'll see if that's continuing on Saturday. Well, they, they can score. Um, they can score a lot of points. However. Uh, do we do we have a status update on Hendon Hooker? Do we know if he's playing? Because uh, Joe Milton, I don't think is uh, is is equipped to go in there and beat Alabama. Yeah, I don't. As of right, as of yesterday, today's Wednesday. As of yesterday or Monday, I don't remember when I read it. It's it's up in the air. They're a different team with Hooker at quarterback. It, it, they need they need Hooker at quarterback. It's kind of sad that USC Notre Dame doesn't even merit a mention. Yeah, that's sad. I just realized. Yeah, um, that's a helmet game. We all have memories of that game, of this series. It'd be but nice I'm not going to watch series, that. It'd, it'd be nice if that series mattered again. I'm not like, <clears throat> what am I watching? Why am I watching? No, you wouldn't. You would have no reason to watch that. None. Oof, boy. Hey, but you know what? Notre Dame wins that game. They're on the road to a New Year's Six Bowl. They'll probably end up like 10 and 2. Um, you know, considering 
what we see from Notre Dame. I think 10 and 2 is a, is a really nice achievement, but we're a little bit far away from that. But they got to beat USC. I think they do. Yeah. Um, I think they, they will not have a huge amount of problem beating USC. I, I don't think you mentioned Wake Forest going to Army. And, you know, that's another one that that's actually the noon game, CBS Sports Network. That, that's a boon for them because there's nothing else worth watching at noon. Right. So that actually is, I mean, Wake Forest, 6 and 0, oh, you got, you, you at least got to take them seriously. Oh, I take them deadly seriously. They're serious. <clears throat> been serious to me since the preseason. I believe that I was on board with you Dave were, Clausen's you were, team. But, you, but you're, a really blind, you're a blind Dave Clausen devotee. I'm just an optimist, man. I'm just an optimist. He worked wonders up in the Bronx at a no, little he, place called Fordham University. He's, he's I just think that I'm an He's a good coach. Um, yeah, this is their best team since World War II. I like saying things like that. World War II. Best since World War II. But well, they did have a team think, that went to the Orange Bowl once. No, no, no. This team's better. Remember how bad the ACC was back then? That, that, that was like, so oh, bad. that was 08, 09, uh, I'm, I'm losing track, but yeah, that, that the ACC was, was bad. Was this was quite bad. This was like Tommy Bowden era Clemson. I also remember very vividly being out and about and watching them blank Florida State. It was like 33 nothing or 30 nothing yeah. in a game. That was a magical, magical moment of my life. Um, so... It's a good game. Army's going to want to like do what they do and control the tempo, hold the ball for 41 minutes to beat Wake. I think you you can't expect to hold them to 20 points like you did Wisconsin. I think they need to start getting the offense moving rather than just sit on the ball. So look for Wake to be 7-0 and for the first time since maybe World War One or maybe the Civil War. No, I'm sorry. We're not quite the there. Crusades. Since the Crusades. The Crusades, pretty much. Um, so 7-0. and It costs an ACC Coach of the Year unless – it beats Clemson, in which case we might want to talk about in our news. It's amazing. The the biggest football breakdown of, of the week on this podcast is Wake Forest Army. Who would have thought? Yeah, pretty typical for this podcast that we finally get to games that we spend a lot of time talking about some team that nobody cares about. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about uh, let's talk about Clemson Pitt. You talked to Kenny Pickett. What are your thoughts on him? What do you think about yeah. uh, their chances? Yeah, I did talk to Kenny Pickett uh, on Tuesday for a column that uh, I'm writing and and. You know, it's just interesting because he's kind of the antithesis of, of where we're at in college football right now with, with quarterback transfers and guys going to the NFL. I, I don't think we're ever really going to see that many fifth-year seniors starting at the school where they began their career. I mean, that, that's almost like, at this point, that, that's almost like a, you know, you know seeing – you know, seeing a unicorn out in the wild, you know, it just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And Pickett's, you know, 23 years old. He's, he's been around, but it's very simple. Like he, after last year, he could have gone to the NFL, got feedback that uh, he wasn't going to be drafted where he wanted to be drafted. He got the extra year of eligibility because of COVID that the NCAA gave every player. He took advantage of it. And, you know, now he's having this unbelievable year, 21 to one touchdown to interception ratio. He's leading a team that um, is undefeated in the ACC. They did, they did take a loss early on to uh, a Mac school, which, which was not, you know, not great, not his fault. His numbers were very good in that game, but there's a little bit of Heisman buzz 
starting to, to percolate around Kenny Pickett that if they do happen to be Clemson, I think we'll, we'll get a lot louder. Yeah, I think this is like his highest game, Dan, and I think it's yeah. because it's Clemson, and there aren't that many other opportunities down the road. So if he wins this game, puts on a show, um, and they beat Clemson 31-14, which is possible, honestly, yeah, I think he's going to get a lot of buzz. I just, I just don't know if he's going to win it. I, I think those two SEC QBs as of this point are so far ahead of the pack, even though that's dull and predictable just to place those two guys at the lead. I just think that he's got a lot of ground to make up. But he could play his way into the conversation. Look, if the season ended today, I think he's a finalist. I think he gets a lot of second, third place, and even some first place votes. So I think he'd be a finalist. But uh, it, for him to take the next step, he's got to play well against Clemson. Well, and the one thing that, that people don't realize – I think in this era of college football, and I talked to him about it a little bit, is just historically how many like all-time football players played at Pitt. You know, and you walk in the building there, their their practice facility. And I, it's been it's been a handful of years since I was there, but you walk through their practice facility and it like smacks you in the face because there's pictures of all these guys. Oh, you know. 60s, 70s, 80s, it, it was really like unbelievable how many just absolute dudes came through that program. And, you know, I don't know that they've had a player, that they've had that many players since then. I mean, you, you, um, you know, you, you had uh, uh, Connors. Well, uh, I'm, why James, am I Connors. James Connors. Yeah, uh, but I, I think your point, Dan, is like they've had. Aaron Donald, they've had Hugh Green, they've had Larry Fitzgerald, but what they haven't had in 40 years is a quarterback. Yeah. But honestly, I mean, Alex Van Pelt is their best QB since Dan Reno. Alex Van Pelt's a nice player at an NFL career, but they haven't had a real QB. They've had these great individual players. Like, but Larry Fitzgerald was catching passes from Rod Rutherford. Love Rod, but he's not He's not an all-timer. I think Ken has got a chance to uh, kind of break a really extended streak. And if it was a major program, like a major, like I'm not saying they're not, but if it was a really huge, big place, like a place that was competing for national championships and this was what was missing, I think it'd be a major story that they finally found a, a, a top tier first round QB after 40 years since yeah. Marina, almost 40 years, 38 years. And and it appears that the, the gamble is paying off because as of right now, you know, the, the NFL scouts are talking about him as a potential first round pick. So. Yeah. All right, well, that's uh, where we'll end the pod for this week. Appreciate everybody listening and hope uh, you can find some nugget of watchable college football this weekend despite not awesome matchups. But just a lot going on apart from the games, as usual, in college football. Glad to be able to talk about it with you this week with Paul Meyerberg. I'm Dan Wolken. Make sure to like and leave comments and subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use to listen to college football fix USA today sports. Thanks again. Listen every week to the college football fix on USA today sports plus the college football fix podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.